Hello everyone, welcome back to the Yukon Internal Medicine Ambulatory Podcast. Today we will talk about the diagnosis and treatment of HIV infection. Number one, definitions. There are different terms used for the nomenclature of HIV infections. Acute HIV infection refers to the symptomatic early infection that usually occurs between two to four weeks after the primary infection. This classic presentation is with flu-like symptoms. Early HIV infection refers to the approximate six-month period following HIV infection. Chronic HIV infection occurs in between an acute HIV infection and the onset of acquired immunodeficiency syndrome or AIDS. Number two, clinical manifestations. It is important to recognize that an estimated 10 to 60% of individuals with early HIV infection will not experience any symptoms. A variety of symptoms can be associated with acute HIV infection. This constellation of symptoms is known as an acute retroviral syndrome. The most common features include fevers, lymphadenopathy, sore throat, rash, myalgias, arthralgias, weight loss, headaches, and diarrhea. Unfortunately, none of these symptoms are specific for HIV infection and they can be underdiagnosed. The severity and duration of symptoms vary from patient to patient. When an acute viral syndrome is present and lasts longer than expected, we should suspect HIV infection. Importantly, if a patient presents with a characteristic acute retroviral syndrome and also has high risk factors for HIV infection, they should be carefully assessed. Risk factors for HIV infection include unsafe sexual practices, men who have sex with men, ethnic minority transfeminine individuals, which are the highest risk group for sexually acquired HIV in the US, the presence of other sexually transmitted diseases, exposure to infected blood, or perinatal transmission. Number three, diagnostic considerations. In early HIV infection, the viral RNA is typically very high and the CD4 count can remain normal, although sometimes it may decrease temporarily. Opportunistic infections are rarely seen in this stage of the disease. We need to have a high level of suspicion to diagnose an acute HIV infection. As previously mentioned, if a patient presents with a febrile illness of unclear cause, heterophile negative mononucleosis-like syndrome, aseptic meningitis, a recent STD, particularly syphilis, or an opportunistic infection, we should consider the presence of an acute HIV infection. Diagnosing an acute HIV infection is important to decrease HIV transmission to others, reduce the HIV viral load, and prevent the development of chronic disease or AIDS. If we suspect an acute HIV infection, testing should include a four-generation antigen-antibody test which looks for the P24 viral capsid antigen and IgM and IgG antibodies. The antibodies become positive between 14 and 17 days after the initial infection. Importantly, if the patient presents early in the disease, antibodies may be negative, and HIV will be only detectable by viral load via PCR. HIV RNA assays can be positive as early as seven days after the infection. Interestingly, patients on pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP exhibit atypical seroconversion patterns in which antibody detection occurs before viral load detection. Patients with chronic HIV infection are diagnosed with antigen and antibody tests with supplemental testing of HIV-1 and HIV-2 differentiation assays to categorize the infection. In the United States, HIV-1 infection is common, but HIV-2 is rare, 
HIV-2 is more prevalent in Africa. All patients diagnosed with HIV infection should have a viral load checked, as well as a T-cell profile, including CD4 counts, at the time of diagnosis. Other important tests to consider include a complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel, urinalysis, fasting glucose, and lipid profile. This will allow us to choose the better treatment for our patients and assess complications such as renal dysfunction. Testing for STDs, hepatitis B and C, tuberculosis, and pregnancy are necessary. Finally, an HIV genotype should be ordered before starting treatment. If abacavir is considered, testing for HLA-B5701 is required to avoid severe hypersensitivity reactions. Number four, treatment. Treatment of HIV should be started as soon as possible. Antiretroviral therapy, or ART, is the main stem treatment. The benefits of earlier ART outweigh the risk of increased exposure to toxicities, particularly because of the decrease of the HIV RNA load, improvement of CD4 counts, and decreased risk of transmission to uninfected individuals. Treatment shouldn't be delayed until the resistance tests are back. The backbone of HIV treatment includes two nucleoside, nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitors, plus a third agent such as integrase inhibitors, an enhanced protease inhibitor, or fusion inhibitors. Typical combination include M3-cytabine, tenofovir, and dolutegravir or bictegravir. Another option is M3-cytabine, tenofovir, and ritonavir-boosted darunavir. There are several treatment options for HIV, and choosing the right ART depends on the patient's characteristics. Finally, prophylaxis for opportunistic infections should be considered depending on the CD4 counts. For example, if the CD4 count falls below 250 in areas where coccidiomycosis is endemic, antifungals such as fluconazole are indicated. If the CD4 count drops below 200, nomocystis prophylaxis with Bactrim atobaquone, dapsone, or inhaled pentamidine should be started. With CD4 counts under 100, toxoplasma prophylaxis is indicated. Toxoplasma prophylaxis is very similar to pneumocystis prophylaxis. Prophylaxis for Mycobacterium avium complex, or MAC, is not indicated anymore with CD4 counts below 50. The risk of infection in the setting of ART is low and therefore this is not indicated anymore. Thank you for listening. Please follow our podcast in Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. We will see you in our next episode.